Well, good morning. Good morning. You're right on your coffee down there. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 7 through 12 in chapter 4 of 1 John. Um, As we come into this this text, and uh, actually this text runs from here through 5-5. It's one continuous teaching and the teaching is 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 on love um, it's it's a it's a subject that John has already addressed in part in chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 and chapter 3 11 through 18 and verse 23 but here is probably his most extensive and full discussion uh, of the subject um, in <clears throat> as we begin in in verse 7 and then of chapter 4 and through verse or chapter 5 verse 5 um, it is a it is a text that is filled with the word love in the English. In in the Greek, it's agape and or its derivatives, uh, all based around that, either nouns or or or, or verbs, back and forth, uh, which is which defines divine love. It's a term. It's it's a term that that does not relate to human emotions or feelings. Uh, not even not even family love in in that sense. It's it's a far more extensive word in its in its application it's it's a word that it is an act of the will not based on any value uh, it's even the the object of the love can be totally worthless i.e us before we were saved uh, that's uh, that's that's the ie that's the that's the that's the implication here it doesn't it's not based on worth it's not based on status on status it's not based on lovability it's solely an act of the bestower on the bestowed and it's an act of the will it's a choice it's choosing to place value and even sacrifice uh for uh for uh, uh, for another another individual, and it's despite even their total lack of worthiness for that for that love. That's that's the extent of this word. Uh, the word is used a bunch of times in 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 First John. In fact, it is probably the most intense intensive use of this word in all of Scripture. It's used forty six times. Uh, either either the either the noun or the verb is used forty six times in first John in five chapters. Most of those uses are found in three one through five five incidentally, although it spatters through the rest of this it 's more defined as we go through the rest of the text twenty eight times it 's a verb eighteen times it 's a noun all in five chapters in comparison. The Gospel of John, which has Jesus' extensive teaching on love and his commands to love, it, it, the word is used 44 times in 21 chapters. There it's used 37 times as a verb and, and 7 times as a noun. So this is some of the most intense <coughs> uh, uh, New Testament teaching on the subject of, of agape love uh, throughout, throughout Scripture. Uh, the love that God bestowed upon those who in faith turned to Jesus Christ at, uh, uh, and based upon, based upon his sacrifice for those who were unworthy at the cross. That's, that's the idea here. And, then, and so, so as we come to this, John, John is basically saying, therefore we believers are compelled to love. And that's how I've, I've framed the, uh, the teaching for this morning. And we're going to do it based on, we're compelled to love because of who God is. We're compelled to love because of what God has done in Christ. And we're compelled to love because of what God is doing in us. So uh, before we get into the text this morning, <clears throat> having throat trouble this morning, so bear with me. Uh, but at any rate, uh, as we get into the text this morning, uh, are there any prayer requests? You guys? Never. Okay, that's fine. Don, would you open us? Sure. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to church, and uh, we want to be compelled to love because of who you are, and that you would open our eyes up to understand who you are in many ways, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and then what you've done for us to deal with our sin problem, and that we would understand in greater ways the gospel, and that we would love you more because of what you have done for us on the cross. We love others more because of what you've done on the cross. And the cross would make more sense to us. It would be meaningful. It would change us because of the gospel. 
even the oldest of saints, Lord, we can have greater understandings of your love. And I pray that would happen today in that church with you. Amen. So this morning we're going to uh, begin in verses 7 through 8. Uh, we're compelled to love because, <clears throat> because of who God is. And so he begins in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us not let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So these are... Uh, these are the uh, his opening remarks based upon on on who God is, and he, he begins he begins with a familiar uh, term, uh, beloved. It's already been used. Uh, John's normal greeting for the believers is "My little children," uh, based upon the fact that he is the uh, the last surviving apostle and probably one of the senior members of the of the church since he's in his well into his eighties, if not. Pushing ninety at the writing of this, at the writing of this, uh, the writing of this book, uh, but here as he did in chapter three, uh, twice and once at the beginning of chapter four, verse one, and he will do besides here two more times in chapter four, seven, and eleven. He uses the word beloved. Uh, beloved, uh, beloved is a word that translates the Greek word agap- agapitos which means you who are loved literally that's how that what that word means it's it's a derivative of the word agape it's that that's that's the love and it's basically saying those who you are loved with the divine love of god that's that's what he's saying to them when he when he uses this word uh, uh, it's it's used 62 times in the New Testament. Agapatos is used 62 times in the New Testament. It's used of God for the Son. It's used of God for the elect. It's Paul. Uh, Paul uses it uh, to address entire church congregations, as John is doing here. He's addressing the believers he is writing to, which would include us, incidentally. Uh, but at, at any rate, um, Paul also uses it. He uses it to address individual co-workers. He calls them beloved throughout his throughout his uh, his closing remarks and several of his letters where he greets co-workers in those churches. He calls them beloved. In the book of Hebrews, it's used to apply to to believers that uh, they are the beloved. Again, in James, it's the same idea. It's used to apply to believers. Uh, Peter uses it to apply to, uh, and applies it to believers, and he also applies it to Christ, uh, beloved. Jude, he also uses this term. So this term is used throughout the now the New Testament. Jude, uh, Jude uses it to uh, uh, to address believers. Uh, there are some sometimes the word is translated dear, uh, even in the uh, even in the uh, 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 in, in the King James, the New American Standard, and other places, every once in a while, this term is translated "dear." And then there are some translations, like the NIV, who basically use "dear" all the time instead of "beloved." Personally, I think that's terrible. <laughs> I think, it, given what this word means, and given the power of this word, "dear" doesn't have that significance. Yeah, we write "dear mom." Uh, we write to a dear child, we write to our dear spouse, uh, and to other relatives, people who are dear to us, but we also use that word to write dear sirs, and then start a letter of complaint about their company. So, uh, I, I just don't think it has the impact uh, that beloved does, so I personally like the choice of the word beloved, uh, because it, it expresses what the word means, you are loved, with the divine love of God. That's what that's what this word means. And that's what John is saying here when he get, when he begins. He says he says beloved, you dear believers who are loved with the love of God. To you uh, let let us love one another. That's the next thing he says. Let us love one another. Here again, a love is agape. Uh, it's the divine love. <clears throat> And it's used in the sense of sacrifice. He says, let us love one another. It's not mere friendship, or it's not physical attachment, it's not emotion, but it basically is a word that is saying, those of you, those of you who loved of God, loved of, of John, in this instance, are to love one another. That's the kind of love that is to be expressed amongst fellow believers. The love that says, I put value on you. 
the love that says, I will sacrifice for your benefit. That's, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the, the idea that, is, that he is saying here. Let us love one another. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he says, uh, and, and it's translated most often in the most, most translations, put it down as if, it's a, as, as, as if it is an exhortation, uh, like it's a command to love. Actually, it's really a statement. Uh, is what it is. It's really a statement. It's, it's assumed that we will love one another. That's that's the idea here. It's 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 a word that that means. It, it's a word that means uh, 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 that we have evidence of who we are because we love. That's one of the things Jesus said. You'll know my disciples uh, by your love for one another. That's that's the that's kind of my rough rough uh, paraphrase of that text. But at any rate, that's the idea here. He says uh, the idea. The statement could be simply this: We love. We who are believers love. That's a, an essential part of our being is that we love. It's an evidence of who we are in Christ. And and it is not that by loving we are born of God. It's a result of being saved that we that we love that's 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 the idea that it's a result of having been born of God that we that we love. Uh, these are those who have been born of God and know God and are able to love. And then he, he goes on in this text and he says, he says, let us let let us love one another for love is from God. That's the next thing he says. Here's the reason. It typifies the God whom we serve because the God whom we serve loves. Uh, it's an it's an integral part of his being. That's that's the uh, that's what he's saying here. And as a result, he is the source of love. And as believers, we're to reflect his nature. So if God so loved us, then we should also so love. That's that's the idea that is that is uh, that is being being uh, being uh, being given here, and it, and it becomes an evidence because throughout this book, John is is giving evidence that you can look at and say, "Do I measure up? If I do, yeah, I am a believer. If I don't, maybe I should check things." You know, that's that's the idea here. Uh, throughout this book, he says that believers are to reflect his nature. He goes on from there and he says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That's the evidence. Second Peter chapter 2. I was in here this morning. Uh, oh, here we go. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that, that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world by lust. In other words, believers, having been born again, having had God's love shed upon them, having brought them into the family of God, he also implanted through the Holy Spirit the nature of God within us. That we would love. That's the idea that's being expressed in here. And he says, he, he goes on. He says, his, he says, he who loves has been born of God. Is born is is a word that um, that uh, actually translates has been begotten, and it's a, it's what's in a what called a perfect passive mode, which means all who are saved, born of God, in the past, continue to give evidence of that fact in the present. That's that's what he's expressing here. Uh, John throughout uh, throughout this book always sees the the effects of our salvation as a continual habitual lifestyle, and that's what he's saying here. Uh, that having been born of God, that evidence continues to be demonstrated throughout our throughout our lives. That's 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 what he wants us to know. And then he goes on and he says, and he knows God. Uh, the one who demonstrates God love obviously must know God. That's the idea here. And I think John probably here is taking a little bit, uh, a little bit of a shot, if you will, uh, back to those heretics that he's dealing with in his day, the Gnostics, because the Gnostics believed that they had super knowledge of God that you, us common people, just 
couldn't possibly have. You know, you just couldn't bid up to that standard because you haven't been given this special revelation. They have. And John is saying here, those who demonstrate love, and incidentally, having that kind of an arrogant attitude does not demonstrate love whatsoever. And, and he's saying, he's saying, he's basically saying here, you who demonstrate the love of God, the very nature of God is seen in you. Uh, you know God. And it, it makes it very clear that, that those who demonstrate the other, who see themselves as superior, better than, above and beyond, do not know God. That's, that's really the idea here. And it, would, and it would apply, of course, to those claims throughout the centuries, and not just in his day. The language indita- indicates, what the language here indicates, knows God, is that, that these people have an intimate, close, personal relationship with the God of the universe. That's what it's saying here. Which, you know, if you stop and you think about those words, an intimate, close, personal relationship with the God of the universe, that's staggering. To know that as believers, we know the Creator intimately, and He knows us intimately. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's the power that, is, that comes through in these words. And then verse 8, he says, he goes on and he, he, he expands on this and he says, he gives the opposite side of it. Says, the one who does not love does not know God. Here's the bottom line. Those, those that don't express agape love, and only believers can do that. They're the only ones that have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is implanted into us, the divine nature, giving us the ability uh, and the capability to demonstrate this kind of love. He's saying, they, those, those who don't, they, they don't know God. The one who doesn't love, the one who doesn't demonstrate divine love in their lives, does not go, know God, regardless of their claim, whatever claim they may make. In other words, there is no personal relationship in that, in that, uh, in that setting. And there are p- plenty of people who go around and they will say, well, I'm spiritual, and you know, and I, I, I know God, but they redefine Him in some other way, and they don't know Him. They have no relationship with Him, and they probably don't demonstrate any kind of love whatsoever. First Timothy, <clears throat> chapter six, verse twenty. Paul Paul tells Timothy. Uh, he warns him, and he says. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godlessness and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. We live in a world where that is just pumped out every day. And and God says, those of you who know me, who know my love, you stay away from that. You you keep clear of that. In in 2 Timothy 3.7 he wrote, he wrote of these uh, of these these kind of people. He said they're always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Uh, that's that's those who don't know God. Uh, when I was in seminary, <clears throat> we were always assigned something we had to write. You know, twenty pages on this and fifty pages on that, and a tome on this other thing. Uh, whatever it was, you had to write on. And I always, uh, my, my favorite thing to do when I started out on that subject was I would go find several commentaries by, by liberal theologians. And I would read what they had to say, and then I knew what all my arguments had to be. That was, that was, that was what I did. And it was like, oh, that works. <laughs> you know, it was really clear what the arguments were and how to defend them. That was these guys. They didn't know God, but they were always learning they had all kinds of knowledge. They were probably experts in the languages, but they had no idea what it meant. They didn't know God. There was no personal relationship. And when you read their writings, you knew that. Uh, it was just all a bunch of platitude and nonsense. Uh, I mean, it was scholarly, and it had big words, but there was nothing there. Uh, John, That's what John is saying then. In Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders and the false teachers knew a lot about God. They talked about him all the time. Uh, they made all kinds of pronouncements about him. 
but they didn't know him. They had no relationship with him. There was a total absence of love, which is demonstrated throughout the New Testament. And it's certainly demonstrated in the epistles uh, when, we, when we deal with, <clears throat> with the false teachers. There's a total absence of love. There was separation. There was, we're better and you're, you're over there. You're se- if anything, you're second class. Uh, anybody who thinks that way, they need to rethink their Christianity because there's no room for that. There's no room for it. And, and that's what he's saying here. Um, this, in this absence of love uh, that shows their unsaved state explains to us all the false theology that runs around today. That's why it's out there. Because they claim to know God, but they don't. They have no relationship with Him. And he goes on and he says, he says this in verse, this powerful statement that he makes now in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, uh, the one who does not love does not know God. And the reason he doesn't know God is because God is love. Now understand something very clear here. This is a statement about the character of God. John has already introduced two other statements about the character of God. Uh, one of them is in verse 5 where he says, God is light. That's a statement about God's character. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 29, he says, God is righteousness. That's a statement about God's character. And here in verse verse 4, he says, God is love. That's a third statement about God's character. And what he is is saying here, what he is saying here in verse 7 is, is because God is light, could say truth, He is absolute truth. Because he is light, we are to walk in the light. We are to reflect that characteristic of God. God who is light, we're to walk in that light. God who is truth, we're to walk in that truth. That's the idea there. Secondly, he is is righteous. And he says, he he goes on in verse 29 of chapter 2 to say that we are to do righteousness. In other words, we are to practice in our lives, righteous behavior that reflects the God whose character is righteousness. And here he says, God is love, and we as believers, to show evidence of our faith, should reflect that love toward others, especially the household of God. That's, that's, that's the idea. That's what, he, that's what he's saying that. These are to be demonstrated in the believer. They express divine love. And keep in mind that this, uh, this construction allows it to only go one way. God is love. Love is not God. You can't say that. You cannot make the sum total of God love. Understand that. Ron Bell is wrong. He's a heretic. You can't do that. That's, that's absolutely wrong. It's the only way it can be translated. God is the one who defines love, not the other way around. Love does not define him. He defines love. He's also righteous, and he is just, and he is jealous, and he is full of wrath against his enemies, Nehemiah 1. And you know what? None of those attributes contradict each other. None of them contradict. That's why salvation came the way it did. There had to be a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. We couldn't pay that price. And God's justice had to be satisfied. That, so that there would be no contradiction. They're in perfect harmony. Because of his love, God provided salvation, John 3.16. Because of his love, love, judgment is delayed currently, 2 Peter 3.9. He's not slow, he's patient, not willing that any should perish. Augustine wrote this about, uh, about the love of God. He wrote this, he said, If nothing were said in praise of love throughout the pages of this epistle, if nothing whatever throughout the pages of Scripture, and this one thing only, we all were, were told by the voice of the Spirit of God, God is love, nothing more ought to be required. We need to understand that. 
This is, this is an essential part of the nature of God, and therefore it should be an essential part of our character as we reflect the God who called us. And then secondly, he goes on to say that we're compelled to love because what Christ has done, in, or what God has done in Christ, verse, verses 9 through 11. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought we ought to love one another. So here, here is what God has done in Christ for us. For us, ultimately, he says, "By this," which refers back to verse eight. He says, "He says, uh, God is love, and by this, the love of God is manifest. It's made visible. It's it's made known. Uh, God, uh, it pictures God's love as unmistakably clear in the incarnation." John three sixteen. God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. That that's that's the idea here. <clears throat> note uh, here God's love uh, did not begin with the incarnation it's always existed it, it, it's nothing new it's always among uh, this is how God uh, God has shown his love among us through salvation that's, that's the idea that, that he's wanting us to understand here he says God has sent uh, incidentally, this word sent has a has a little bit of a special meaning to it because it applies to a special mission. Uh, <clears throat> and it's, it's a mission that was started in the past. And it's in a construction that says he, Jesus was sent on a special mission that had effect or took place in the past, but has effect for today. It's a continuing idea. That's why people only in the first century... Uh, it, on the day of Pentecost, who got saved weren't the only ones. It continued. It continued today, and it can, and it goes on. That's that's the idea here. It's a continuing message. Jesus commissioned and and, and was, uh, was commissioned and sent by God, and He has continuing authority. That's that's the idea here. Uh, it speaks of His authority. Uh, at Philippians chapter two. That very familiar passage, I suspect, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a continuing authority. It continues into the millennium and into eternity. He has continuing authority. That's the idea. That's the idea that he wants us to understand when he when he says this. And when he says that by this, the love of God was manifested, that God has sent his only begotten son. That's that's the idea. Uh, He has continuing authority. He was given authority and he has continuing authority. And this is the unmistakable, unmistakably clear love of God. He sent his son. That's what he's wanting us to understand. And he and he goes on to say his only begotten son and only begotten gotten means his unique son, one of a kind. It doesn't mean a son among other sons. It means the only one. The only one there ever was, ever will be. That's, 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 that's what's being expressed, uh, being expressed here. Hebrews chapter 5, or chapter 1, excuse me. Verse 5. For to which of his angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he and and when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, "And let all the angels of God worship him." That's the idea here. He's the unique, only begotten Son of God. That's he's one of a kind, never to be replicated. And he, and, he, and and as his Son Jesus is God of very God, the Creator came to his creations. It's, uh, once again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 
They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment, and they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's, that's, that's God the Father speaking to God the Son. That's what he's saying here. You're the creator. The creator came to the creation. That's, that's the idea here. <clears throat> that we might live through him. That's what he goes on to say. So that we might live through him. Uh, John has uh, addressed this uh, already, or will address this when we get to chapter 5, but we'll, pick, we'll get a little bit of a preview here. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 5. And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Verse 13, These things I have written to you who, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you might know you have eternal life. Incidentally, those are present tense verbs. It means present possession. Presently today, you possess eternal life. That's what he's saying here. Chapter, uh, verse 20 of chapter 5. And we know that, this, uh, that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. That's what John is saying here. That's what the text is, is saying here. He says, he, 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 uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, tells us that we were spiritually dead. John is telling us here, Christ made us alive eternally. From the moment you were saved, you, beset, you began to possess eternal life. I don't know if you can say you began to possess something eternal, but at any rate... That's the best I can do with the language at hand. But at any rate, uh, that's the idea here. Uh, this is not future. It's, it's, pres- it's present. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's what Jesus did. He came in salvation that you might live eternally with God. That's the love bestowed. That's, that's what is to compel us to love. Uh, that's what is to remind us to evangelize, in fact. Because all of the lost are under wrath. And they have no life. And, he, and then he goes on to say, in this is love, which then in verse chapter 10, or verse 10, he says, in this is love. Oh, got to get back to the right text. In this is love, not that, that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sin. So here we're going to have, uh, incidentally, in this simple little verse, we have two major doctrinal or theological themes that we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but he says, in this is love, which refers to what's going to follow in verse 10, and, 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 uh, and, and which, which gives us uh, how, love, how love is lived out in a way. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. Love has, uh, has, has no origin in man. Its origin is God. It's God initiated. It is God who loved us first. That's, that's the idea here. Romans 5, chapter 8. But God showed His love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we didn't, I've, I don't know if you've ever witnessed to somebody and, and they've told you that uh, they can't come to Christ until they stop this. They were giving me a list. My next door neighbor did that one day. I was talking to him and he told me, he says, well, he, he was uh, raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home and he was a confirmed heathen. And uh, he, uh, he said to me, he said, uh, I, we were talking about it. And he goes, well, someday I'll come to Christ, but first I have to stop smoking and I have to stop cussing and I have to stop drinking. You know, I tried to explain to him that that's not the way it works, but he was steeped in that. He's also the guy that one day was eating pork rinds, and I took one out of his bag and ate it, and he's told me I couldn't eat that because I was a Christian. And I said, yeah, I'm not Jewish, you know, but at any rate. But at any rate, Seventh-day Advism had crept in. But, but anyway, that's the idea here. While we were sinners... Not, not after we stopped doing all of our sinning did God save us. He saved us while we were sinners. That's, that's the text here. Romans 5.10 For while you were 
sinners for uh, I can't read my writing. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Here, here, here he talks about reconciliation. Christ reconciled us while we were an enemy. He brought reconciliation. He brought peace. That's the idea here. Reconciliation, reconciliation uh, speaks of those who are formerly alienated uh, from Christ by His death were made at peace with God. You know, you know, you realize every unsaved person in the universe is in a war with God. That's an unwinnable war. It's an unwinnable war. They're enemies. And we once were enemies. But, but having received Jesus Christ, a peace treaty was signed, in effect. It's far more than that. Uh, but, but we were made at peace with God. Uh, God is no longer angry at you. God no longer wants to bring His wrath toward you. No, He shows you His love. Because you're at peace. That's the terms of the peace treaty. We love. That's, that's, that's the idea here. He made peace with us. And then he goes on to say, not only did he reconcile us, not only did he make peace, but he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Appitiation means appeasement or atonement. He paid the price. That's, that's the idea here. It stresses the holiness of God having been satisfied. In other words, Christ's sacrifice Turn the wrath of God away from you. I heard one guy explain this as saying, is saying that this, uh, the word picture of this, this verse is the, the red hot angry face of God was turned white. That's, that's, that's what, that's what propitiation speaks of. <clears throat> Turns Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death turned away the wrath of God that we deserved. It turned it away. It, it turned it completely away. And it met the righteous demands of a holy God. It also has the concept then following that uh, that his, his sacrifice paid the price of our redemption. That's, all of that's combined. There's 15 other words that go in all of that. But nevertheless, those, that's the idea here. He paid the He reconciled us. He made peace with God. And He did that because He made propitiation. He, he, he atoned for our sin. He atoned for our sin. First John 2.2 2. John wrote, And he himself is a propitiation for our sin, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. That's the idea here. His sacrifice is sufficient. It has sufficiency uh, to, to reconcile, uh, to, to pay the price. Romans 3.5 speaks of that propitiation. Hebrews 2.17 also speaks of that propitiation. And then, he, and then there's, there's, there's a result of the fact of, of, of Christ having made propitiation for us. 2 Second, Second Corinthians 5.21 <clears throat> For our sake He made Him who knew no sin made, made Him sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter three eighteen said he made us alive in the spirit. That that's another effect that has here. Uh, three sixteen tells us that it provided eternal life. We've already talked about that. In in, in Hebrews nine fourteen, it purified our conscience. It cleaned our conscience before God. We can come boldly before His throne room with a clean conscience. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.6, He paid the ransom. He paid the price to get you out of the slave market of sin. That's, that's the picture that is being expressed there. He ransomed you. Uh, you've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. That's, that's, that's the idea here. And, and, uh, and then again in Colossians 1-2, He reconciled us. He brought us to peace with God. All of this, all of this was accomplished 
in his, and his sacrifice on our behalf. And it's because God loved us. As a result of that, he sent, it, he sent his only, the one-of-a-kind son, his unique son, to die in my place. And all of those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he turned God's well-deserved wrath away and made peace. That's, that's the picture that he's saying here. This is, what, this is what he did in Christ. And then he goes on and, and gives this concluding remarks in, uh, on this subject in, in verse 11 when he says, Beloved, once again, beloved, those, those who are loved with God love, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says, "Beloved, if God so loved us, we also we should also uh, we ought to love one another." Loved, loved is 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 a is a past tense. It points to an historical fact. It points to the time of Jesus' ministry and death, the supreme gift of love, uh, and it's and, and it's a it's a past event that has a continual effect. That once again is that idea. It's one of those kind of things. It it, it has a continual effect, and he uses this word so. Uh, which which is uh, used to 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 uh, say say uh, precisely loved or or uh, to such an extent is uh, is how this word should be used in this context. He loved us so to to such an extent that he sent his only son to atone. To be that propitiation for our sin. That's the extent his love drove him to. That's, that's the idea here. And then he goes on and he says, he uses this word ought, which incidentally doesn't mean it would be a good idea. That's not what this word means. This word has no concept of that. You ought to go do this. No, it doesn't mean that. It means this. It means it, you have, it implies you have a moral obligation. That's what it implies here. We are morally obligated to love others because Christ loved us. That's what this word, this, that's what this means. Uh, that's, what, that's what John is saying to us. He's saying, because through Christ we have, we have peace with God. We have made our uh, we we know we know his wrath has been turned away from us. We are no longer under divine judgment, but under divine love. We are to live lives that reflect that. Because Second Peter one four tells us we have that divine nature, the ability to do so, resident within us. And Second and Second Corinthians five seventeen tells us that we are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We are not that old person anymore. And we have the nature of God within us to, and the capacity to love. And therefore, therefore, we are compelled to love because of what God is doing currently in us. Verse, uh, verse 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. He begins out by, he states, he states a very clear fact. He says, no one has, has beheld God at any time. What he's saying is no one has seen the fullness of the essence of God as spirit. John 4, uh, John 4, 27. Uh, no one has seen God face to face in his fullness. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, man has seen the incarnate son. Uh, the Christ man, of course, John, uh, John eighteen one and fourteen fourteen one tells us all of that. And in First John, John began the book by saying, by saying, from the beginning, we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, and we have and we have beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then he goes on to 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 explain. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus here. So we we've seen the incarnate God in human flesh. In the Old Testament, there were theopanies, uh, where they where they saw something of God, something of His glory. Isaiah chapter six, Exodus thirty three thirty two, where where Moses is put in the cleft in the walk and the uh, rock, and the glory of God passes by him, and even that he thinks is going to kill him. 
just there. Uh, but no one has ever seen his fullness. First Timothy chapter one, verse seven. No, verse 17, excuse me. Verse 17. Well, I've got a wrong text here. No, 117. Oh, yes. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honored and glory forever. Amen. The invisible God. We don't see God. We don't see him face to face. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, he, he is saying, we have not seen his fullness. But if we love one another, God abides in us. That's what he says here. He says, but love demonstrates who God is because it's part of his very nature. That love being expressed in us gives others a reflection of who God is. He gives a reflection of that divine nature. That's the idea here. Also, also the other things about God's nature that are to be reflected in us, walking in light, doing righteousness. Uh, all of those things, let the world see who our God is. That's, that's, what, that's what he's wanting us to understand here. That's how, that's how the world sees, sees the world. Uh, John 13.35, Jesus said that you will, if, if you have love for one another, it will demonstrate you are my disciple. That's, that, that's the idea that he wants us to, to understand here. Uh, <clears throat> love for one another. Uh, this dis- display of God's love testifies that God abides. He's at home in us. He's, his dwelling place is with us, or we dwell in him. The, the two are interchangeable, actually. Uh, but it's evident that that is resonant. Uh, and what he is saying is love is the evidence of God's abiding. Uh, he, he is there because his Holy Spirit implant, is implanted within us. To chapter 2, verse 20 and verse 27. Uh, Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, says this, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children also heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may, glor- we may be glorified with him. So that's the idea here. He's saying, he's saying, he's saying to us, while the world can't see the invisible God, and nobody could stand the fullness of the invisible God. And yes, we have seen the apostles, of course, and in, in the early days saw the incarnate Christ. We can see Him in you. That's what we're supposed to be able to see. The world is supposed to be able to see see the Lord God in you. Yeah. Love here is in a present tense, which denotes a pattern of life. In other words, you don't just turn it on and off. It's how you live your life. It's how you live your life. And then he goes on, he says, his love is perfected in us. Uh, God's love reaches uh, its intended goal in us when we sacrificially love our fellow believers. John three sixteen and 17. For God, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For, this, for God did not send this world, the son into the world to judge, uh, but that the world might be saved through him. And then in John 15, he wrote in 16, six, uh, in 12 uh, through 17, he wrote, This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that, that, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear, uh, you would go and bear fruit and that, and that that fruit would abide so that whenever you ask, so that whatever you ask my Father in my name I might give you. This I command you, that you love one another. That's a, that's the, Introduction to this whole section on love that John is going to going to be explaining as we go through it over the next couple of weeks. I forget, I think three uh, <laughs> three anyway. Uh, but at any rate, um, what he's saying here is the essential character of God is to be demonstrated in His followers. And we're compelled to do that based upon all that he has done for us. First of all, we're compelled because of who he is. Secondly, we're compelled because of the salvation he brought in Jesus Christ, that he redeemed us, he reconciled us, he, he turned away the wrath of God and made us no longer enemies, no longer at war with God, but at peace. And that was all done because Christ died on your behalf. Uh, he took all of that for you. And then finally, uh, we are to do that because of what he is doing in us. And that is, that is, he is through the sanctification process, making us more like Jesus. And we are to follow his command and we are to love as he loved. That's, that's the idea as he expressed here. Uh, we're to walk in light, we're to do righteousness, and we are to love as God loves. Any comments or questions this morning? I am just thankful that my voice lasted this long. Well, I'm glad you are. (laughs) Anyway, let's close. Father God, we give thanks this morning. We give thanks because you are our God. Because you and your divine sovereign grace chose to save us. And you did so at a very great price. Your son, Jesus, had to leave his place next to you in heaven and come to this earth as a man being found in the fashion of a man and that not only that if that wasn't enough he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for my sin and all of those who follow you and father we're just amazed at that Uh, we probably don't have the words to express the gratitude we should uh, for for so marvelous a salvation, so marvelous a plan that was hatched in eternity past, and we were chosen in eternity past, and in time and space your Spirit drew us while we were enemies, while we were alienated, while we were fighting against you, drew us to yourself. And the blood of Christ was applied to our lives, and we were changed. And Father, in that change, as as we grow in Christ's likeness, may we love as you love. May we demonstrate that divine love that is willing to sacrifice for the sake of others, regardless of who they are. And Father, we just ask now that the rest of our day would be spent in praise and glory to you. We we ask your blessing upon on all that will go on in our worship service this morning. Pastor Darren, as he leads us in, in, in singing and, and leads our, our instrumental people in, in, in the music that is applied to to honor you through through the through the sung word. And Father, we uh, we, we ask your blessing on Pastor Steve as he brings us the message today. And we thank you for him, and we thank you for the work that he does. Just open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might receive. And we thank you, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.